Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director for the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today we're joined by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. He's the author of The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, which was published in August 2021, and We Cast a Shadow, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, the Dayton Literary Peach Prize, and the Penn American Open Book Prize. A New Orleans native, Ruffin is a professor of creative writing at Louisiana State University and the current John and Renee Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. So welcome, Maurice. Hey, Sarah. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. We, I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. So um, for those who may not know you or your writing yet, how, how do you describe your life as an author now and um, your writing style? Oh, it's a dream life. I mean, I think that most people, whether they know it or not, have some creative ability. And I'm somebody who, um, if you know me, you know that I was once a corporate lawyer um, and I decided to make the move into creating uh, stories and novels and essays. And now I'm living that life uh, every day. And it's been a fantastic second act in my life. That's so cool. So tell us about uh, what you're, so you're writing. What else are you doing now? You're teaching, you're teaching at LSU, you're teach, you're, we're uh, writing residents in Oxford. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's been interesting with the, with the pandemic and everything, and yet life goes on, right? So uh, just as the pandemic was starting, I had, uh, I was in my first year as a creative writing professor at LSU, and I was getting ready to move over to Oxford to be the, uh, the writer in residence uh, under the uh, John and Renee Grisham program. And um, I did that. And, you know, um, my first book, as you mentioned, came out in 2019. And by the way, I, I wish I wish that it, it was not the Peach Prize that it was nominated for, but the Peach Prize, because that would be just really cool. It sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, I was thinking the same thing, because when I try and say it, I always say Peach Prize. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I apologize. Um, Peach Prize. The, uh, no, really. I, I'm always here for, for the joy part of things. Um, but, but that's what it's really been. For me, it's been a situation where I know that if the pandemic had happened and I was still practicing as an attorney versus uh, somebody who's writing and teaching, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. You know, my students, for example, at both LSU and at Ole Miss have been such a bright spot. You know, young people are very resilient. They keep that, that, that great energy. And, um, you know, I'm working on my third book, which I've been working on now since I think December of 2020. And really being around them has been very inspirational for me. And being in Oxford for that period of time, I'm, I'm actually out of Oxford at the moment, but being there was, was really a big part of the process. And so I'm writing this third book and I'm feeling inspired and I'm feeling happy and I'm trying to have as much fun as possible. That's incredible. That's awesome. So, so yeah, tell us a little bit. I'm so curious to know more. Um, you practice law you you I guess you still are an attorney but you um how did how did you how how was that transition what was have you always been a writer have you always done both how did that happen that's incredible it just seems like your writing career popped out of nowhere but I'm sure that's not really 
what happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm an overnight success that took about 40 years to get to it. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that for most people, you know, the things that you can sort of see in the shadows of your future, if you're a young person, you can imagine one day falling in love and finding a life partner, or you can imagine having a child one day, or you can imagine this alternate life when you're in this career that makes you wake up happy every day. And, you know, I have found love and I have found friendship and I found all these wonderful things. But as a lawyer, I kept thinking that, wow, wouldn't it be great if I just spent more time writing? And so even though as a child, I was told I was a pretty good writer, I hadn't really dedicated myself to it. I hadn't tried to publish very much. I hadn't trained myself very much. And so I went on this kind of like a hero's journey of uh, co-founding a writing group, going back to school to get, to get an MFA in writing, um, publishing stories, getting rejected a lot, and getting to a point where I felt confident enough to put together a, a novel, which became We Cast Shadow, found a great agent, and you know it was off to the races. It's been one great thing after another ever since then. That's amazing. So what was that like? Did you always feel like you were using two different sides of your brain that you were having two lives? Did the two mesh well? Like, what was that, that like for you trying to juggle both? I, I believe that there's very little wasted energy. And I think that the younger version of myself, say in my early 20s, was definitely a writer, but he was a little uh, floppy. He didn't know how like, to sort of bear down and tell a story. I think being a lawyer forced me to be more on point. So if I had to draft a brief for court, you know, you're turning this brief in and the judge does not want this like, you know, hairy dog tail. They want something that's very specific and direct and a certain mm-hmm. page numbers and that, and that sort of thing. And so that taught me a lot about um, diligence and gumption. And it's the reason why now when I sit down and write, I'm very much on point for a period of time until I take my break. And, you know, I think that I moved out of the law ultimately because there was a point where I realized I had way more creativity that I could that I could uh, keep inside of the law life you know I write these amazing briefs my boss would say this is a great piece of um, work you did but some of the more fun interesting things that I have to cut out because it fit to that I'm like well okay that's fair you know you can't have like a story being told in, like a six-page brief but I can write a 300-page novel and people would appreciate that mm, that's so interesting yeah I never thought about it that way but that's true so are you so do you still practice law I do a little bit. I mean, what's happened is that, you know, as a lawyer, most of your cases can span uh, many months, if not years, and sometimes even decades. So I had like some cleanup cases that I've been sort of closing up. Um, and, you know, look, I have friends and family who will give me a call and say, hey, how does this thing work in the law? Am I in trouble? Can you help me with this? And I'll you know, give a little bit of like off the cuff advice, that kind of thing. But really, in my, in my mind, I'm retired as a lawyer. Yeah, that's great. So what is what is the um, shift been like for you into teaching college students? Well, my grandmother was a teacher. She taught um, English special education. And in fact, when I was a young person, I had a bit of a reading disorder myself. She taught me how to get past it. So so I think that, you know, I've always had this respect for teachers mm-hmm. and I kind of avoided teaching because I think if I had not been a lawyer, I would have almost 100 percent been a professor in my 20s at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I took the path away from that for a while. And then eventually I was kind of like, you know, what are you doing, man? Like, just, just, you know, go to a college and teach some people. I think you're going to enjoy it. And that's been the experience. I've actually taught now at uh, Tulane. Then I've, I've been at LSU. I've taught uh, at Old Miss, of course, as well as doing some sort of, you know, like summer programs or weekend type programs for other organizations like Maine Media or the Randolph College. And um, everyone is different. Everyone is special. And there is an exchange of energy 
you know, uh, I'm teaching the students they're learning, but I'm learning from them as well and getting getting their energy. And so it's been great. I think that I, I just I really enjoy it. There's always discovery in teaching. Yeah. What has there have, has anything surprised you in teaching? I think the most surprising thing is how good these students are. I mean, yeah. You know, I don't want to throw too much shade, but I remember being in creative writing when I was an undergrad myself, maybe 21 years old. And, you know, maybe a, a couple of us were pretty good at it. But I found that by and large, the majority of the writers I teach, whether they're undergraduates or, or graduate students, they're really talented. And I think that that is maybe a reflection of young people growing up in an environment where they have, the, you have these amazing uh, stories that have become uh, worldwide properties. So whether it's a Hunger Games or a Harry Potter, or um, you know any of the vampire stories, you know, Twilight or True Blood, you know they're reading these books and they're learning to the, to the technique from reading the books, so that when they come to the class, they have this this high level of, of basic competence that maybe was not there in like the late '90s, early 2000s. That's so interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. Um, so, what has it been like uh, teaching? at University of Mississippi versus LSU versus Tulane? Have you, has it been similar experiences? Has it been different experiences? Well, I have to say this, and I've said this in public before that my, my Ole Miss students, they are a sweet bunch. They're one of the nicest bunch of people I've had the, the chance to work with. Um, and the pandemic obviously made the experience different because it was primarily me teaching on Zoom. Even though I was in town, I was on Zoom for those sessions mm -hmm. for the most part. And I only met about half of them in person uh, throughout the experience. But, you know, that being said, I can't think of any place I would have rather have been than in Oxford. Um, I think that for me personally, um, you know, being from New Orleans, which is one of the most active cities on earth, if I had been in New Orleans and I'm trying to teach even on Zoom, that sort of ghost feeling of all the things that are not happening around town, I would have like a sort of reverse FOMO. You know, why isn't this thing happening this weekend? And why isn't that happening? Mm -hmm. It would have been very sad. So being in Oxford sort of freed me from the sort of feeling of I should be going out on a Friday night or going here on a, on a Saturday morning and meeting these people on a Thursday night versus, you know, I have my writing, I have my students, I have my colleagues. And it was, a, it was enough. I really felt mm. like I was filled up by that experience of being in Oxford as one of the uh, writers in residence, as, as, the, as the writer in residence. That's great. Yeah. And uh, will you tell us a little, just for those who don't know or maybe not familiar with that uh, residency program will you just tell us a little bit more about it and and the structure and purpose yeah look it is a one-of-a-kind program you know there's a lot of um uh, things we can do in life where compensation makes life easier if you work on wall street if you're a doctor but you know writers often struggle to you know pay their bills and so what this does is it provides one writer per year this is now going back to like i think the early 90s or maybe late 80s um they bring in one writer per year. That writer teaches some classes. Uh, they're there to work on their next project, you know, their, their, their book of poetry or their, their next novel or their short stories. And, you know, I have to say that you know, between the Grishams and the university making this, this program get even bigger and better over time, it's just really been a wonderful thing. And if we could use more of these kinds of programs, I know that there are people out there who have art that we want to experience, but they don't have the time or the space as, the saying goes, um, an artist needs a room of one's own in order to create the art. And for me, I had that experience like so many before me. There have been writers in the past, just like Kesse Lehman and Jan Ray O'Neill, who were there before me, and they did wonderful work. So happy to be following their footsteps. That's incredible. Yeah, it was it was always fun when I lived I lived in Oxford for 
about six years and it was always fun to be able to interact with whoever the writer in residence was just incredible interesting people it was awesome so tell us a little bit about this song that's coming up <laughs> well so so you know mississippi artist uh brandy norwood who I actually didn't even realize she was from there until i looked it up i chose this song for a reason when i was a young person i, I played orchestral music i was a violinist first and I played bass and I would always get really happy whenever we had a full orchestra that included a harp I just love the sound of the harp so growing up in the 90s and hearing this song with this harp I was just shocked and delighted that you know Brandy and Monica are like fighting over a boy in this song as a harp plays on the loop in the background I just love the sound of it so much this is Sarah Story the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission you are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows, or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today we're joined by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. He's an author and professor, and we're so glad that he's here with us. Hey, everybody. So we were talking a little bit um, before about Oxford, Mississippi, and your experience in the Writer-in-Residence program. But I'd love to go back to where, where you began. New Orleans, Louisiana. You tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up there. <laughs> There's no place like home. I feel like if it was the Wizard of Oz, it's like you would fall asleep um, on Auntie M's farm and wake up in New Orleans. You know, it is like this, this sort of fantasy land, especially if you spend any time in the French Quarter or around those sort of touristy areas, you're just gonna see some pretty incredible things. Um, I grew up in New Orleans East, which is an area of the city that was kind of underrepresented in you know, movies and books. And so it was like this big, it's actually this very big suburban area. I had a, a quiet childhood. I grew up in a subdivision, which was, you know, enclosed. I had this friend group that you know, we knew each other's parents. And it was just a very sort of safe and lovely space to be in, even in the throes of, you know, the, the, the sort of 1980s, the, the, the drug wars and those sort of things that happened in the city itself. Um, but then I got a little bit older. I got to high school. I could see what was happening to my peers across town. And there was also this sort of feeling of, oh, wait a minute, there's also like this sort of separation between public and private schools. And the more I saw how the city was constructed, the more I thought about how that makes us who we are. There's a reason why some of the most famous New Orleanians, whether it's um, a Louis Armstrong or uh, Irma Thomas or, you know, other, you know, Fats Domino, you know, they came out of this community that was very tight knit despite the problems. And that made them the artists that they became. Um, and so I see myself as a part of that whole that whole lineage, including, you know, my friends like Sarah Broom, who's also from New Orleans East, 
she wrote a book called Yellow House. It won the National Book Award. And she describes very well the sort of specificity of being um, you know, a, a black kid from a suburb that nobody's ever heard of before that has its own vibe and tone and rhythm and pace. Um, and it's just great. You know, look, I, I've traveled the world a little bit in my life and wherever you go, people are like, oh, New Orleans. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, I told you before we started that I lived there for about, I guess, seven years. I loved every second of it. And whenever I told people that I lived there, they would always have a story. Always. Yeah, always which, I'm, not. which I really appreciated because that doesn't happen everywhere else that you talk about. Like, that I've no. lived at least, you know? No, no, look, I mean, you know, Lord love them, but there's sometimes where you kind of go, I'm from the place and they kind of go, wait, where is that close to again? And you, and so New Orleans is one of, it's its own place that people are very well aware of. Yeah, so true, so true. So um, did you, were you writing, uh, were you in the arts growing up? Did that come later? What was that, what was that like for you, the creativity, storytelling? I did not keep a journal. I didn't write any books as a kid. I think what I did was I was a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. um, I love to read everything from like Ursula K. Le Guin to Maya Angelou. I was a big uh, fan of comics growing up, like X-Men, you know, and Captain America before they were like these big budget movies that we have now. And definitely in school, you know, my teachers and mentors would always say, you know, you're a pretty good writer, kid. We're going to have an assembly. Can you like tell like a little three minute long story for, for your classmates? So I knew that it was back there in my background. I think like a lot of writers, I didn't understand what that really meant until I was in my 20s. That's when I began to focus more on developing my own skills and trying to write the kind of work that I could publish for other people. Yeah, that's great. So I noticed, so we talked a little bit about your, um, that you went to law school and then, but you also got a psychology degree? I did in 2019. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I want to hear about that. Well, I mean, the, the, the truth is, um, if, if you're getting a degree, that's one more way to not pay your student loans, just to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Great, Great tip. Um, but also, I am a, a lover of academia. I'm a lover of knowledge. You know, if I just stayed in college as a student my entire life, going from topic to topic, I'd be fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, I think being a, being a professor is kind of a version of that. And uh, my psychology degree is helpful. I think that every degree that I've gotten with it was law or English or a minor in sociology has taught me about the world and about people. And getting a psychology degree, it's like being a doctor of the mind. You know, there's a doctor who can see you across from and kind of go, oh, that person has jaundice, or they have a heart problem. And with the psychology problem of you know, training, I can sort of like talk for a minute and kind of go, oh, I know what's going on there. But I also have this sort of sympathy because we all have something going on there within our own lives. Mm -hmm. And so it's just been very helpful to have this sort of playbook for how to live my own life and how to deal with my friends and my family and how to be a better person all around does it does it help you or have you do you think it helps you with your character development as well oh it's no doubt about it yeah because you know human motivation is, is a mysterious thing and i've always been very much into trying to present that on the page in my novel we cast a shadow we have this hero who's kind of like a sketchy guy but he has motivations that he believes in and I think that, you know, psychology has taught me that certain kinds of personalities will make certain kinds of excuses for their actions. And so I can put that into my characters in a more uh, facile way without having to struggle over, why would she say that? Why would she do that? Not, well, no, you know, this person has, you know, borderline personality disorder, or this person is, you know, quote, unquote, a giver, or whatever that, that thing is, I can just put it in there really quickly and then see how it affects that person's worldview in the story. Yeah, that, 
I can definitely, definitely see that in um, the short stories that you wrote. They're just incredible. And just the characters are so dynamic and interesting in, in each one and very different too. Thank that was really that. neat. Thank well, I do want to ask you a little bit about that too. So, in in the in the short stories, and the the book is called "The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You," which is recently it's new. Yes, just this year. And so, is that a series of stories that you've written over time? Is that something that you had always planned to be a book, or was it were you just writing the stories and then it, it ended up being able to be a book? Yeah, I was writing the stories. It's like if you're. Uh cooking and you get that sort of reduction of the sauce, like the, the best part. These are my best stories. I've probably written well over hundred stories at this point. These wow. are 19 of my stories. And the sort of thematic connections of New Orleans, um, you know, it, it's, it's this collection of characters who are designed to show you what it's like behind the, the sort of image of this sort of tourist trap city that's mm-hmm. New Orleans. It's the people who actually live there and work there and go to school there. And I wrote the stories over a period of about 10 years. So it definitely is like my own personal growth informed these characters' personalities and also what I decided to focus on because almost half of the characters, half the lead characters are women. And I think that me as a younger writer, I wouldn't have felt either comfortable or confident to try to have, you know, a 40-page story about, a, you know, a Black lady in her 40s trying to navigate the work life in the, you know, the, the, the late 2010s. Yeah. Um, are you, is that, Let's see. The short story before I let go. Yes, it is. is that the one you're talking about? That one was I really enjoyed that one because it really as just I mean I'm just repeating what you just said, but it really showed the complexities of New Orleans and both the positives and negatives and different viewpoints of what positives and negatives would be about the growth of a city and how a city changes, especially after something like Katrina. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like what informed that story it was just so incredibly awesome and but complex yeah thank you i wrote that story specifically because i had never seen a woman like that as a lead character in anything i had read Mm. again she is in her 40s she has a daughter uh she's gay she's working class she has she has a house that's been in her family for generations and that kind of a character is often the background character like they're somebody's best friend or they work Mm. in somebody's office in the tv show or film and I was like, what if she was the main character? Um, and, you know, a lot of the problems that we have mentioned, they're worldwide problems. Like the, the, the financial crisis of 2008-9 happened across the entire world. Uh, gentrification has been happening across the entire world. But it's something about New Orleans where those things play out in a very specific way. And so I think that her story is special in the book because she is sort of giving you a view in on everybody else's stories within the book, you know, some of the characters are dealing with uh, issues of you know, work-life balance. So there's like the story of Delta University. People are dealing with trying to like, you know, make a little bit of money, same thing in that story, but also the same thing in a story like uh, Big Brawl Steel, you're raising some money so you can live a life. There's the sort of pressures of being in a tourist city, which is the title story, for example. And in her story at the end, before I let go, all of those factors are at play in her life, in her daughter's life, in her best friend's life, and in her, uh, her lover's life in that story as well. So it's all right there for you to see in this, this sort of uh, compilation of the other stories. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, so what else um, has it been like starting to write in a city like New Orleans? So you, you grow up there, you're practicing law. How did you, how were you able to cultivate 
cultivate writing there? Well, I think a lot of people who are artistic in New Orleans wind up going towards music first and foremost because it's such a natural thing, especially in the public schools. There's been a support for that throughout our history. And then other people just sort of, you know, if they have this creative impulse, they may put it into some art sometimes. But it's the kind of city where people can do things sort of DIY and not for like mass consumption. And that's perfectly fine. Um, I think I'm seeing a transition now where people are recognizing that, you know, if you are a literary type person, you want to write a book, it's possible. There are so many uh, dozens, if not hundreds of up and coming poets and writers, most of whom are, are you know, African-American, but not all of them are, who are just on the verge of putting out their work. And I can't wait to see what happens. So I could name people like a, a Catalyst Alcindor, a, a Desiree uh, Evans, uh, Emily Stadt. Um, I mean, there's dozens of people who are just making their work right now and they're putting it together with the best of their ability. And I'm hoping that the, the publishing industry is watching very closely because if you don't get on the early part, you're going to miss out on a good opportunity. So find these people where they're at and, and, and have their stories told. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot going on. So, and you were able to create a, um, a, a writing group, writing how were you able to do that um, while you're living, while you're living there? Well, you know, I've been involved in many different things in New Orleans that are writing related organizations. So for example, I was involved with uh, 826, which was known as, as Big Read for a while. That's a children's organization to encourage local kids to, to read and write. Um, I was one of the early members of a group called Melanated, which was all people of color and black folks. I helped co-found a group called Podunk, which is still active today. And um, the thing about it is that I think people want to come together. I think that writers in particular need to have an infrastructure to support themselves and the people who are on the same mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that for myself, I couldn't have done anything that I've done without that, that support structure, whether it was the official groups or the sort of informal mentors that I met throughout my time there, teachers like James Nolan and John Bigonet and others. Um, and so, you know, New Orleans is perfect. I think that if I had been somewhere else, maybe I wouldn't have found that support. And I wouldn't be where I am right now. That's incredible. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, this next song? And then we'll go to a short break. Sure. So, uh, you know, Bo Diddley, I love him so much. And of course, Mississippi dude. I mean, he basically like invented a beat. I mean, he took a little bit of like the, the, the Western African beat and like just changed it, made it simple. So it's like that bump, 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 bump. And so that's the Bo Diddley beat that has been a part of American music, rock music, even hip hop now for generations. Whether it's the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, they're using those exact same beats. You hear it in sometimes like in, in Drake or Kanye songs. And so, um, you know, that song in particular is so full of energy and so full of life. And I just smile when I hear it. I love I'm a man so much. This is Sarah Story, the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you, 
and let you know how the law affects you. Find in legal terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website at legalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. This is Sarah Story, and today I'm joined by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Thanks again so much for being here. Really appreciate it, Maurice. Anytime. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit more. So you were talking about um, growing up, living in New Orleans, writing in New Orleans, that scene. Um, what's it, what is change of scenery been like for you teaching in baton rouge teaching in oxford going other places and teaching what what is what has that journey been like and, and has that changed or informed the way that you write yeah you know i think um i'm a little bit like jimmy stewart and it's a wonderful life I, some people have watched that during the season and he has this whole thing he's trying to escape you know bedford falls and i think that when i was very you know i kept thinking i'm gonna get out of this little you know put on town as soon as possible and it, I just never did, really. And so I, I really spent the majority of my, you know, 44 years in New Orleans. And being at Ole Miss as the Grisham writing residence was my first time spending basically a full year outside of the city. Wow. And uh, I was really shocked by it because, you know, again, you're from New Orleans. It's a very energetic, fantasy-based place. And Oxford is not that at all. You know, it, it's more of like a, a homey family, a little bit kind of rural, kind of suburban kind of place. Now, I, I got there, it was like one of those, you know, 1980s movies, like Fish Out of Water, like, how's this going to work? You know, this guy in this place. And I have to say, you know, I adored it. Um, you know, being in the, the house where I was staying, which was relatively, uh, you know, in a quiet space, um, I had a lot of time to think and to not be concerned about, like, my next door neighbor or the cars passing by or, again, like, who's having a party across town right now because of the pandemic in part. And so being in that depressurized situation really allowed me to access deeper levels of my own writerly consciousness. And so I just felt like I was very much at home. I was like a duck sitting in a, you know, a pond and, and the, the water was just like the perfect temperature. I didn't have to, you know, try and get warmer or colder. I was, I was just loving it. And, and so uh, again, I'm very appreciative to Old Miss for having the opportunity as well as the Grisham family. Uh, it was just peaceful and productive uh, throughout the, the entire experience. That's awesome. And so um, did that make you want to keep traveling, keep to continue experiencing new places? Or were you ready to, to get back to New Orleans for a bit? Well, what is that? It's the idea of like the, um, the cognitive dissonance. You know, on the one hand, I could have stayed in that situation for the rest of my life. I mean, just perfectly fine. I mean, you know, I'll see you when I'm 90 years old, basically. You know, goodbye world. On the other <laughs> hand, I didn't want to get I did want to get back to my life and, and see what was going on in New Orleans, in Louisiana. So I do think that now I am more open to doing more traveling, maybe some more of those type of residencies or fellowships. Um, I see the value in it. And in fact, the biggest lesson was, again, as a city kid, I really see the value in like a, a bit of a slower paced, more nature-based lifestyle. I mean, I think there were geese landing in the, in, the, in the pond. You know, there were rabbits, you know, going through the snow. And you don't see that in downtown New Orleans. Right. So I really, really enjoyed that experience. Yeah, and you were um, houses down from William Faulkner's historic yes. home. Is that right? And the in the the trail back there. Yeah, the, the trail the trail is wonderful. I mean, I, I'm a jogger, so I would do a good bit of jogging and go up and down the hills. It was a great experience. 
that, that area is so beautiful. I used to teach at that museum, that art museum and uh, historic home complex and um, bringing the, the kids into that trail back there into William Faulkner's Bailey's Woods was one of my favorite professional experiences mm, yeah, ever. Yeah. We got to do programming around that the um just the nature around that area which was how it informed literature and art and community it was fascinating um so what has been uh your experience even just going to baton rouge you know it's it's seemingly so close to new orleans but the two are pretty different oh yeah it's a different world there's no doubt about it it's, it's a yin yang experience because you know baton rouge is it's a collegiate town um and it's also gone through its own growth in the past 10 15 20 years and so you know, it's very commercial and it's, it's definitely the sort of place where I, I get the sense that either like you're a student and you're doing that thing or you're, you know, with your family and you're doing that thing. And somebody told me yesterday, they said, it's like, there's no FOMO in bad news. I'm like, what do you mean by this? Like, just trust me. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, I, I see what that means. And again, I think that it's just a different mode of being. I think that when I'm here, you know, it's, I'm, I'm teaching um, most days, I'm writing most nights and it's a very comfortable way to be living my writing life right now. I feel like I'm in a good spot to be living this way. That's awesome. And is that, um, has, has Baton Rouge changed or have you had enough time for it to see if it'll change the way that you, you write your perspectives or characters or any elements of your writing? The jury's still out on it, but I yeah. do think that in the past, I would have felt very uncomfortable because it's not home. Mm-hmm. And so like there was a period I went through adjusting to Oxford, for example, and I haven't really felt that so much. I felt like I've just been able to get back into what I've been working on pretty straightforward. Now, how it affects the writing in the future, I, I, I'll have to look back in six months to know that for, for a fact. But I know that my place always affects my writing. So I know it's going to happen. Yeah, that's so cool. That's great. Um, so you mentioned that a lot of the stories in, in this book are centered around New Orleans, um, the characters that that live there, but maybe are not seen all the time by the general public that go there as a tourist. So um, one, so another one of my favorite stories in the book was called Ghetto University, which <laughs> it just makes me laugh even thinking about it. It was so, just so incredible. It, it was just incredible. So will you just tell us a little bit about that story? <laughs> sure, sure. Ghetto University is about a husband and wife who are having... Uh, <laughs> trouble paying their rent. Uh, he's a professor who's out of a job. She's a chemist. And the setup is that uh, one day he's walking around the French Quarter. He's kind of a geeky guy, but somebody mistakes him for a mugger because, you know, reasons. And they just throw money at him. So he decides to start wearing a hoodie through the French Quarter and is getting tourists to throw money at him to make his rent. And the story is one of my most outlandish, you know, satirical, farcical stories. It's actually based on an old story called The Gift of the Magi, where husband and wife each try and give a gift to the other. And it's this sort of cosmic joke about how it can't quite work out. And that story to me is just pure joy. It's so fast paced. There's so many twists in it. And often when we see French Quarter based stories, people in the stories are tourists. So like, you know, Girls Trip, which is a great you know, Tiffany Haddish movie. It's tourists come in town, have an adventure to go back home. But this is some New Orleanians having their own adventure in the French Quarter for a change. It's great. It's so, so wonderful. So um, did you have a favorite story in your in your book? It's like picking your favorite child, but I mean, each one has its own thing. My, my mood dictates what's my favorite. I mean, I definitely laugh when I think about Yale University. I think the first story is extremely powerful and affecting. I think that last story before I let go 
is the one where I feel like I really was able to pull in all the threads of my personal journey as a writer, trying to, where I was concerned with this in 2011, concerned with that in 2015, and put it all into one story at the same time. Um, and of course, a lot of the protagonists are, ch are children, which I really just, I think, I like telling their stories because they don't get their stories told. So Rhinoceros was the last story I wrote in there. Well, actually it's tied for um, Cesara Pittman. And I love that character because she is this historical type figure that I've created who is just not what you expected. She is extremely self-possessed, uh, confident and interesting in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so what are you what are you working on now? Book three. I'm writing my next novel right now. Yeah. Amazing. Can you tell us anything about it yet? Oh, sure, sure. I've, I've talked about it a little bit. And what I figured out is that it's going to be uh, an epic that's set in three time periods, the 1850s and 60s, the 1940s and 50s, and some point in the future, maybe 80 years from now, give or take. Um, and I'm following a single family. Um, the lead characters are all Black women. And the idea is I'm trying to show what I've observed myself watching, you know, my mother or my aunties or my, my grandmother, how you know, these women's community-oriented uh, spirits help protect them and build up people around them. Um, you know, if we cast a shadow, it's this sort of dark satire. This book is kind of the opposite of that. It's, it's like a light realism. It's made to make you go, you know, wow, look at how like wonderful and smart these, these ladies were. Even back in 1850, when they weren't all free, um, they were still fighting for their own rights, fighting for their families, and fighting to have their stories told. I'm, I'm having a blast telling it. I actually started writing this book almost exactly a year ago in Oxford. So it feels very good. That's great. That's really cool. So what else are you um, looking forward to in the upcoming year? I guess you'll have you'll have an academic break soon. Yeah, yeah. So um, actually, my break started on Friday, which is a lot of fun because now Excellent. the students get their break. I get my break um, in the new year, uh, pandemic permitting. I'm doing a lot of traveling and teaching uh throughout the year. So in the summer, if people are looking for me, they can find me up at Maine Media. I'll be at AWP, which is a big writing conference in Philadelphia. There's several things happening in New Orleans throughout the year I'll be involved in. Um, I'll be in Florida at Longleaf uh, in May, which is a writer's conference. And also I'll be at Breadloaf in Vermont. So I'm doing a lot of traveling, which is how I like to do things. Like I'm looking forward to getting back into the world, meeting writers and, and meeting readers. That's great. Um, so where else can people find you? Uh, do you have website, social media? Where are you most active? Yeah, all of the above. So I have a website. It's called mauricecarlosruffin.com. That's my name. And you can see information about my books on that website. Uh, also, I love social media. I've been on it for a long time. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, it's always Maurice Ruffin is the name. And, uh, Twitter's a lot of fun. You know, people often spend, a lot of, spend time griping on Twitter. My account's the opposite. It's a very positive space where I just say good things about life and writing in general. So there you go. That's awesome. Um, so what, so after this book, do you have, I just would be so curious to know, like you've been able to change your entire life and career so much, you know, so drastically being an attorney to a writer. Do you have big plans for another big pivot or project anytime soon? Oh, I always do. I'm always dreaming big constantly. I'm, awesome. I'm like that, that cute dog is laying on his, on his back and it's like, you know, dreaming, you know, with his legs in the air, basically. I, I have a book of poetry I'm planning. I have a craft book on writing I'm planning. I'm working on some screenplays also. 
and I have a memoir somewhere in the works too. It's, so uh, yeah, I have no shortage of ideas and I will be uh, in a store near you soon enough with all those ideas. That's great. So what else, what is inspiring you now? You mentioned some New Orleans writers that are, are you're really enjoying. What else, what else is inspiring you? Anything, any other medias or other writers? Well, for example, there's a, there's a New Orleans elder named uh, Fatima Sheikh. She lives in New York now and she's probably in her late sixties, I think. And she has been in the game for a while. And I look at what she's done and I have so much respect for her as a writer and her story and a somebody who's just really talented. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm in my forties now, if I could be even half as good as she is, you know, in her 60s, I would have done some really good work. So I'm looking at that in my diaspora. There's other writers like Ricky Laurentis, for example, or Urban Weathersby. Um, there's the Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Jericho Brown is from Freeport. I'm looking at this entire world of people and thinking, all right, we're doing okay. And I want to just be a part of that team, making my state and my city look as good as possible. That's great. Um, so what else do you have like a place that you have not been able to go to yet that you would love to go to and just gain inspiration for, for your future characters or projects? Oh, it's no doubt. I mean, I mentioned it in the story before I let go, the main character's daughter works in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved you know, Japan and that culture so much. I just haven't been there yet. So I'm, if, they, if you're out there listening and you have like a ticket to Japan, <laughs> I'll go, you know, no questions asked. You set me up, I'll be there as soon as possible. Putting it out in the universe. Yes. <laughs> That's great. So what else, um, what else is going on for you for the holidays? Do you get to sit and write? Do you spend time with family? What does that look like? Yeah, holidays, you know, it's family and it's a reflection. At the end of the year, um, I, I love this time of year because just before the year ends, I will sit down and write in my journal about like, like a sort of top 10 list, you know, mm. best movies, best TV shows, best books you know, biggest events, craziest happenings, that kind of stuff. And it's a good way to, to me sort of uh, formally reflect on what I've experienced. And then my hopes for the new year, which is almost always, you know, keep on writing, keep writing better, you know, make more friends, go to interesting places. You know, the end of the year is a, is a time for reflection and for hope, and I love it so much. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can please contribute today at mpbonline.org.